Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Welcome to the Breakfast Show's monthly environment special, Climate Connections. Heavy streams of thick smoke turning the skies a mass-like orange hue and with a floating odour, bitter and pungent. That was the apocalyptic-like scene that tens of millions of people living across parts of the United States woke up to in the earlier part of June as plumes from more than 400 wildfires in Canada travelled south prompting air quality alerts. With forests spanning almost 362 million hectares, Canada ranks as the country with the third largest forest area in the world. Dr. Karen Hodges, Professor for Conservation Biology at the University of British Columbia, says that the fires this year have been exceptionally concerning as scientists are seeing cascading effects and causes. They've started incredibly early. We've already burned a huge amount that puts us into the top five or ten years in Canada in terms of amount of area burned. And we still have the majority of the fire season ahead of us. So it's exceptionally bad. And spring wildfires are also very damaging to wildlife because that's when most animals are breeding. So we expect more mortality to animals because the young won't be able to escape the fires. In terms of linking this to climate change, the evidence is quite strong that climate change is enabling these huge mega fires, not just in Canada, but around the world. The chance of creating the drought conditions and the long burning seasons is far higher with climate change than it would be if we didn't have climate change. Already, data from the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre shows that about 5.3 million hectares of forests have been burnt just this year alone compared with a 10-year average of about just over 331,000 hectares. Dr. Hodges and her students have also noticed observable behavioural changes in wildlife living in these forests as the frequency and severity of these fires worsen year on year. What's happening across Canada is we have more landscape that is in this newly disturbed habitat type. And so that's a major risk for species at risk of extinction, because if animals require those older, bigger trees, as we're burning that off the landscape, we have fewer pieces of remaining habitat to support those species. So I've had students working on Martin, Canada lynx, uh, cougar, also known as mountain lion, um, snowshoe hare. And what we see is that they really don't like the very new burns. So anywhere from zero to 20 years after a fire. What they will do is preferentially use the existing mature forest or use patches within the burn that were far less burned. So these mega fires don't always burn everything. There are certainly patches where they do, but there are also patches where some trees don't die. So near a stream corridor or the wind just shifted and so a, a certain hillside didn't get burned. And the animals are very sophisticated at going to those residual patches within a burn. So what we see is very often a, a predator will make a beeline across newly burned stuff that they can't use much at all. And then they'll slow down in these little patches of existing trees where there might be prey or their shade for shelter. And then they'll beeline again across the burned stuff that is bad for them to again find another pocket of useful habitat. So that's very different than a predator moving in mature forest where it's all good. And so they can slow down, they can hunt, they can take shelter wherever. And when asked about keeping these wildlife populations around long enough for additional forests to regrow to support them, 
conservation biologists like Dr. Hodges express concern as post-fire regeneration is a complex process. I will bring in climate change here again because there is some evidence that we will lose forest, that we simply have too much dry habitat now, that it will be very difficult for young trees to re-establish. Or we might get some young trees starting to regrow and then another fire comes through and kills them. And again, that just not enough time in between for mature forests to establish. So some scientists have actually estimated we will lose between 15 and 50% of boreal forest in BC in the next century because of this inability to regrow forest after these mega fires. Despite the grim outlook, all is not lost. Researchers say targeted and consistent long-term monitoring could be that secret key to unlocking the complexities behind how species are responding to extreme weather events and thereafter come up with better solutions. Assistant Professor of Biology at York University in Toronto, Elizabeth Clare, one of the researchers behind a new study by Canadian and British scientists, reviewed a novel way of harnessing fragments of genetic plant and animal material in the air we breathe to track changes in biodiversity in very much the same way air filters work. Before the fire, you might have a certain number of things that are regularly sampled on these filters. You might see a sudden change in that. But then you might also be able to map restoration. If they're being taken every day or every week over and over, what you might see is things like pioneer plants moving into the area and taking over burned fields, species moving back in. And we know that there is a succession, an order that things can take over disturbed habitat. And that's something we might be able to track effectively every week if the samples are being collected consistently before and after an event like that. Assistant Professor Claire started studying these genetic material fragments called environmental DNA or eDNA alongside scientists in the UK some three years ago. And to their surprise, the samples collected could tell them useful information such as the abundance of a particular species in an area and how it changes over time. There's three things that this type of material, environmental DNA, is really good at. The first is detecting newly invading species. So it might be like an early warning system. And we've seen that in aquatic systems, where you suddenly quickly detect the DNA of something that's very, very low in abundance, but it's newly moved into an area. And so determining or detecting that something has come in that's new can be very, very important to conservation, particularly if it's something that's invasive and you want to know that it, what its effects might be. The same thing flips over to rare species, things that are endangered. This may be a very non-invasive way of detecting that they're still present in an environment. So the marvelous thing about this is that you don't actually have to interact with the animal or the plant. You just pick up the material it's left behind. And so it may be a very good way of actually detecting rare species and their persistence in an environment. But the third thing is because these samples in particular are being collected so rapidly and so repeatedly, it allows us to measure something that's pretty rare in biodiversity, which is the dynamics of the populations. If it works really well, we should be able to see species migrating in and out, moving back and forth. That is information that's really important to understand how biodiversity changes on a regular basis, where it goes, where it comes from, and those movement patterns of lots of populations simultaneously. That's something we might be able to do with this. It's why we need to validate it in the areas where we know those information in order to be able to extrapolate it elsewhere. But that'll be really critically important. Assistant Professor Claire says there are challenges in scaling up at the moment, but the team is hoping that this can be applied to larger nations like Canada in the longer term as it could help in gathering reliable data for analysis after mass disturbances such as wildfires.
And speaking of crossing borders, she shared how this particular study came about by accident. We were working on our at-risk sensing using these handheld sensors. And a gentleman from the National Physical Laboratory, James Allerton, saw a report someone wrote about us doing this. And he's not a biodiversity scientist at all, but he does help operate one of these large-scale networks. And so he contacted us to find out what it was we were doing, because we were talking about using bioaerosols and particulate matter in the air. And that's absolutely his specialty. So he called us to ask whether we thought these networks might collect the same material. We'd never heard of these networks, not really. We, you're sort of semi-conscious of air quality reports in the news. We didn't actually know how it was measured. And so we talked a lot about how their network of filtration systems worked. And then he sent us samples. And that was about January of last year. And some of those samples were new, fresh samples we collected for the study, specifically preserved for DNA. And some of them were actually samples that were part of their regular operation that had actually sat in one of their labs for almost a year before they came to us. So they were longer term proper samples from a network to see if those were viable. It's really a great example of how cross-disciplinary discussions can produce interesting solutions. So James Allerton is a physicist and a metrologist who studies air quality. And Andrew Brown is a chemist by training who also works in metrology, studying pollutants and, and atmospheric chemistry. Joanne and I are geneticists. We work on biodiversity and techniques in molecular ecology. There are very few scenarios where the four of us would get together and work on a problem or even have a discussion. And it's really that case where James got an idea and called us up and introduced us all together. And we got talking about what we might be able to do using the technology that they operate every day. To them, it's normal. And to us, we've never heard of it. And so this is a marvelous case of disciplines that wouldn't normally interact actually getting together and proposing a solution to a problem that's been around for decades. With climate change, part of a growing field of study known as attribution science is becoming more common to see scientists attempt to use data to measure how directly climate change affected recent extreme weather events. Through chemical fingerprinting methods, scientists from US-based non-profit organization Union of Concerned Scientists found that 37% of the total burnt forest area in Western Canada and the United States between 1986 and 2021 can be traced back to 88 major fossil fuel producers and cement manufacturers. But even with growing evidence of the impact of emissions traced back to specific fossil fuel companies, environmental experts say a lot more needs to be done to reconcile the differences between scientists and stakeholders in the energy industry in order for real difference to be made. Right now, Canada is getting the bulk of it. But in the last 10 years, there have been major fires, unusual record-setting fires in Australia, in Brazil, in Siberia, in Indonesia. The list goes on, in Europe even. And so, yes, the focus is on Canada this year, but this is part of a decade of immense fire that is clearly and strongly linked to climate change. And we expect this pattern to continue. So we need to get serious globally about reducing carbon emissions, or we are going to be living in this future of megafires pretty much every year. Just like the University of British Columbia's Professor Dr. Karen Hodges, York University's Assistant Professor Elizabeth Clare feels a lot more needs to be done. You cannot plan for biodiversity. You cannot look at restoration 
you cannot measure any of these things unless you're going to measure the effect it's having. So if you want to put in some sort of restoration plan, you need to be able to monitor that it's effective. This would be a very good way of potentially monitoring for the effectiveness of an intervention, but also the effect of a disturbance. This was the Breakfast Show's monthly environment special, Climate Connections, on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.